everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Bahara. All right. My guest today is uh, Ambassador Dinkar P. Srivastav. He has worked in the Indian missions in Washington, Brussels, Tripoli, Malta, Plague, and Tehran. He served in the Indian Council General in Karachi. He negotiated India's participation in the Chabar Port Development. Post-retirement, he served on the board of directors of GAIL, as well as India Ports Global Limited for development of the Chabar Port. He has extensively dealt with the Jammu and Kashmir situation in the United Nations and other international forums. He was a member of the Indian delegation to the World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna and the International Court of Justice in the case of shooting down of the Pakistani spy plane Atlantic. He's one of the co-authors of the Comprehensive Convention Against Terrorism. He coordinated the VIF Task Force on India's Energy Transition in a carbon-constrained world. But today we are not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Ambassador Dinkar's book, Forgotten Kashmir. And it is my absolute pleasure to welcome him, sir. Podcast for Anikale, bhot bhot Thank you. Thanks for a very generous introduction. So, sir, my first question, I always have this tradition on the podcast that whenever uh, we discuss a book on the podcast, my first question is, sir, why this book and why this specific topic? Uh, I dealt with Kashmir issue for eight years in the 90s. And we had to face Pakistani resolutions repeatedly in General Assembly and the Commission on Human Rights. And we found that the narrative was distorted because it only focused on the Indian side of the line of control. Nothing was known about the other side. And this was not an accident. So I have tried to fill the gap and I have tried to do this based on Pakistani sources so that the facts cannot be disputed even by the other side. So, sir, actually, let's talk a little bit about the... Because this is the one bit I remember even in the introduction of the book, you you specifically uh, mention about this, that all the references and the source material uh, uh, is through Pakistani sources primarily in this book. Now, how tough was it to even from a uh, point of view of accessing those uh, sources? Were there any roadblocks when you were you would try to gather those sources or, or of any kind? Were, would they be? Would they make sure uh, that uh, they they don't let you access some of the things they don't want you to access? Uh, this is uh, a very important question. It was I imposed on myself a very difficult. Uh, standard that is using Pakistani sources. I had one advantage having served in Pakistan and knowing Urdu. And uh, I have gone through many of the first hand account of uh, people who shape Pakistan's Kashmir policy. Uh, so this these are now in public domain, fortunately. Uh, I also had accessed a lot of material, especially debate in Pakistan National Assembly on Shimla Agreement, for instance, uh, in the Library of Congress. And I accessed the UN Library in New York uh, because obviously, uh, as an Indian diplomat, I would never be allowed uh, in POK. So this has helped me. And some of the major sources, you know, Akbar Khan, he is the man who planned the tribal invasion and led it he, as a serving officer of the Pakistan army, later became 
military advisor to Prime Minister Liaquat Ali Khan. There's uh, Qutbullah Shahab, ICS. You know, he is very famous figure in Pakistan. As government of Pakistan issued a stamp in his name. He headed uh, secretariat, presidential secretariat for 11 years. Uh, then there is uh, Muhammad Yusuf Sarraf, who has played a very major role in POK's uh, formation because uh, he was a Muslim conference leader. And the Muslim conference had initially decided, working committee had decided to, uh, had supported Kashmir's act, uh, independence under Maharaja. It was Yusuf Sarraf who got it uh, reversed in favor of Pakistan. So he has played a very major role in, uh, in, in Pakistan's favor and therefore he has an insider's account and he has written a two-book history of what went on in, in POK, uh, which I have very extensively used. And last but not the least, I've used the uh, judgments of Pakistan Supreme Court. I have used the POK uh, Constitution, 13 Amendments, Gilgit Baltistan Order. These are all government documents. They are available in public domain. And some of them, you know, I had to access, you know, I had some difficulty in access, but I, 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 I got it. Sir, uh, just out of curiosity, why do you think in the discussion, um, and I, when I mean the discussion, I'm not stating the discussion from the Pakistani perspective. I'm talking about the, the eyeballs that we catch in India and, and the words that come out of our mouth in India. Even for us, why do you think that a book like yours, because like I consider myself to be someone who actually does uh, re try to read uh, as much as possible. But, you know, I barely find people actually having a razor sharp focus on POK. And uh, every, you know, there are books after books on the Kashmir uh, controlled by India and administered by India. And uh, and nobody talks about POK. And books both come, articles both come, intellectual discussions both come. What could be the possible reasons for that, sir? Partly it's Pakistan's policy of censorship. POK is called the last colony. So even Pakistanis are not easily allowed. And this was used as springboard for terrorism. So obviously Pakistan had a reason to keep it uh, under the curtain. And uh, this is one reason. The other is, of course, that uh, most of the writers on Kashmir find it easier to you know, write on the basis of Indian sources, which unfortunately cover only one part, but that is the easy part. And that has created a dissonance or gap. So an impression is created that the problem is on the Indian side, because that's the only thing which comes out in international press. People do not know what has gone on and on the other side of the line of control, which is what my book brings out. So, sir, Abhi, uh, let, let's get straight into the book. We can uh, maybe 
let's talk about a little bit of the early history. So as you had uh, shared the presentation with me, I also will bring up the map now as we talk about the early history. So, so I'll hand it over to you now, sir. Uh, you have a look at the map, the purple part, the, you know, it's like the, 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 the northwest corner of Kashmir. Uh, this is uh, what is called northern area. It looks like the lion's head and there's a thin sliver of territory running north-south opposite Jammu region of India, uh, the lower reaches and that, that is the what Pakistan calls Azad Kashmir. We call the entire area uh, shown in purple here as POK. Now, what, what is the difference in terminology? Uh, Pakistan has separated northern area, which is 85% of the territory under its legal control, right in the beginning. And this was a violation of the UN Security Council resolutions, which was brought out uh, much later in 1993 in a historic judgment of the POK High Court. And the POK High Court described this the, the secession or separation of northern areas from Azad Kashmir or POK by Pakistan as a violation of Security Council resolutions by Pakistan. Now, let me describe the strategic importance of the northern area. Without Pakistani control on northern area, there would have been no CPA because northern area has given Pakistan geographical contiguity with China. Conversely, we lost geographical contiguity with Afghanistan and Central Asia once Northern Asia was occupied by Pakistan. Now, there are different views when Pakistan took over Northern Asia uh, away from, from POK. The current view uh, is, based, is based on what is called Karachi Agreement. This was an agreement signed in 1949 by uh, between Pakistan government, which was represented by Nawab Gurmani. He was the minister for Kashmir affairs. On the POK side, the, there were two representatives, Sadar Ibrahim, the first president of POK, and Chaudhary Ghulam Abbas, the chairman of Muslim Conference. Now, this agreement, as I mentioned, was kept secret by Pakistan. Why? Because Pakistan had changed the territorial status quo without plebiscite, which was a violation of Security Council resolution. Now, there is a caveat to this, and there are, in fact, two caveats. This is, you know, uh, in the 90s, I saw uh, an American movie, and the hero uh, is caught by his second wife flirting with his third girlfriend. And when confronted, uh, he denies whatever the wife was saying. And he uses a delicate phrase, you know, about a version of truth. And the wife retorts, there's no version of truth. Truth is only one. So Karachi agreement is one version of truth. What is the truth? And for that, let's go back to the primary source. This is Major Brown's account uh, of what happened in, in Northern Asia. He headed uh, a, a Gilgit's cows, which was a... Uh, a militia under uh, Maharaja's government, and he raised the flag of revolt on 1st November 1947 against the Maharaja. Now, 
never before or after anywhere in the annals of history freedom struggle has been carried out by representative of a colonial power so obviously there were other forces at play and he was not a lone ranger he has given written in his memoirs that after taking over northern area he asked uh, northwest frontier province to send a representative to take over control of this territory gilgit scouts were headquartered in northwest frontier province in undivided india and that representative was a man called mohammad alam a tehsildar of northwest frontier province who came and took over control of northern area from major brown on 17th november now this is all in his memoirs called kudeta which is a very apt description of what happened it was not an indigenous struggle now the issue is why was northern area not handed over to provisional government of pok which had been formed earlier on 24th october why was it handed over to a representative of northwest frontier province which was part of pakistan so obviously pakistan took over control of northern area way back in november 47 itself this gives light to the later theory which has been you know basically brought out to whitewash uh, this 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 part of history now there's another twist to the tale of karachi agreement there are many you know versions of pakistan has many versions of truth so a key signatory of karachi agreement who represented kashmiri or pok people was sardar ibrahim the first president of pok in his he was an accidental president a minor functionary of muslim conference the senior leader was ulam abbas who was in prison in shrinagar so this chap got a chance now in his later life uh sardar ibrahim went on saying maine zindagi mein aur bhi galtiyan ki hai ye galti nahi ki hai i have committed other mistakes in my life i have not committed this mistake so he denied completely denied ever having signed karachi agreement which raises a question that to begin with it was a forced document to rationalize pakistan's control which you know uh, which which took which took place in way back in in 47 itself and chaudhry gulam abbas the other signatory of uh, the so called karachi agreement has also distanced himself he said that he was only party chairman and as party chairman his job was advocacy of kashmir cause and therefore he had nothing to do with the secession of territory so that whole episode that is separating 85% of pok from uh, and taking over for direct administration by pakistan is uh, was a violation of security council resolution and agreement itself is most probably a forced document fair enough uh, but uh, then sir there is a lot of talk about plebiscites प्लेबिसाइट होना चाहिए प्लेबिसाइट होना चाहिए भारत प्लेबिसाइट नहीं करने देता है सो सो व्हाट इज द रियलिटी व्हेन इट कम्स टू द होल प्लेबिसाइट सिनेरियो लेट मी टेक यू टू नाउ टू द द पीओके पार्ट यू नो द व्हिच इज वेयर द द फाइटिंग टुक प्लेस इज द लोअर लोअर रीजन बिकॉज़ देयर वर नो पाकिस्तानी फोर्सेस इन नॉर्थ एरिया एंड पाकिस्तान डिनाइड इन सिक्योरिटी काउंसिल 
having committed troops in uh, POK, it was called tribal invasion. Uh, Sir, the Captain, uh, sorry, Colonel Akbar Khan, who led the, who planned the tribal invasion, he has described that the invasion was planned and approved in a meeting by Liaquat Ali Khan, Pakistan's Prime Minister. In fact, he has described four such meetings. And there's a very interesting episode with uh, Saraf recounts. He recounts his his uh, discussion with uh, with uh, uh, Sadar Ibrahim, who said that he he announced formation of provisional government on the basis of two phone calls received from Rawalpindi. Why Rawalpindi, not Karachi? Karachi was the national capital because Rawalpindi then as now was Pakistan Army headquarters. And who were these callers? One was Khwaja Rahim, uh, Rawalpindi commissioner, and the second was uh, Begum Naseem, the wife of the military adventurer, Colonel Akbar, the then wife of Colonel Akbar Khan, who was by then already inside uh, Kashmir leading the tribal invasion. So this is the part of the invasion story. Now we let's come to the plebiscite. You know, India took the issue to United Nations in, on 1st January 1948. Uh, UN formed UN Commission on India and Pakistan, UNSIP, which came to India and Pakistan and adopted a resolution in August 48, which had three parts, ceasefire, withdrawal of uh, all Pakistani forces. India was asked to withdraw only bulk of its forces. And this was a major difference, which is the closest UN came to acknowledging that India had a uh, had a legal claim. Uh, Pakistan had none. And that's why Pakistan was with, to withdraw all its forces. And the third part was plebiscite, which was in this chronology, it came at, after withdrawal of Pakistani forces. Pakistan never withdraw. With Jews, so plebiscite did not take place. Now, this, this part of the story is available in public domain. What is not uh, was known, which my book has brought out, there have been, contrary to the public impression, that India went back on plebiscite. It's Pakistan which went, went back on, on plebiscite. There have been only three formal occasions when plebiscite was offered. And on all three occasions, India was willing to consider it. Pakistan rejected it. The first such occasion arose on 2nd November 1947, when Mountbatten went to Lahore to meet Jinnah and proposed plebiscite under UN's auspices, exactly what has since become Pakistan's official position. And Jinnah refused it. Now, this account is given in, by Alan Campbell Johnson, Mountbatten's aid in his memoirs, Mission with Mountbatten. Why Mount uh, Jinnah refused? Because tribal invasion was going on and tribals had killed, raped and looted Hindus, Muslims and Christians without discrimination. So Jinnah knew that Pakistan will lose the vote. So he turned down what became subsequently Pakistan's official position that is plebiscite under UN's auspices. Second such occasion arose in 1950, UN appointed a mediator, Avan Dixon, who came to India and Pakistan and proposed regional plebiscite. He said a single plebiscite across the entire state would lead to would leave pockets of minorities on either side of political divide and lead to forced migration, which was already happening on a much larger scale across the subcontinent. So to avoid it, 
he suggested regional plebiscite and limited the scope to the valley because he said in other areas, given the composition of the population, it was known which way they'll go. Valley, the contention was in the valley because 70% of the population were Muslim, but the leading uh, political organization, National Co uh, Conference, was aligned with India. Uh, now, Pakistan should have jumped at it because if you go by its theory, Muslims of Kashmir wanted to join Pakistan. Avan Dixon has recorded that India was willing to consider it. Pakistan turned it down. And Pakistan said that regional plebiscite was a departure from the principle of single plebiscite. Now, in the same paragraph, next sentence, Avan is very critical. Avan Dixon has reported to the UN, but I'm, however, given the impression that Pakistan is willing to accept partition of the state provided it got the valley. So Pakistan was willing to abdicate the principle of single plebiscite provided it got the valley and it got the valley without a vote. So single plebiscite was simply an excuse, a pretext. Now comes the third and the most critical part. 1953 August, Sheikh Abdullah was... Uh, dismissed and arrested. India is supposed to have lost the Abdullah card. And as people like Mr. A.G. Nurani keep saying that, you know, after that, Nehru developed cold feet. Uh, Pakistan proposed bilateral talks. Muhammad in India accepted it. Prime Minister, Pakistani Prime Minister Muhammad Ali Bogra came to Delhi. Bogra Nehru communique was issued, which is in public domain. Bo it committed both countries to plebiscite. Muhammad Ali Bogra went back and on 1st December 1953, he wrote an official letter to Prime Minister Nehru rejecting plebiscite, which he had agreed three months earlier in Delhi. Now, this essentially killed the proposal because plebiscite is a bilateral choice between two countries. It cannot be held unilaterally. And this is four months before Nehru uh, rejected plebiscite. This was, you know, in April 1954, Nehru said that, you know, Pakistan has joined Seattle Sinto uh, and therefore situation has changed. But by that, he was essentially flogging a dead horse because the idea of plebiscite had already been killed by Pakistan, uh, Pakistani Prime Minister. Now, the question is why Pakistan was repeatedly rejecting plebiscite under UN's auspices, which was its official position. Why did it, did it do so three times? Uh, to understand that, we have to look into internal situation in POK. In 1949, Pakistan dismissed Sardar Ibrahim, the first president of POK. And this led to Sudan revolt. Sudans were his tribesmen. They were a martial lot. The revolt is spread all over POK. And it has it lasted almost 10 years. Now, initially, Punjab Constabulary was deployed and then Pakistan uh, Army was deployed. In 1955, Muslim Conference, which was a leading political organization in that region, submitted a memorandum to Pakistan Constituent Assembly. And in this memorandum, it gave a graphic uh, description. If you could show those slides, uh, the, the memorandum said, there is a campaign of terror going on uh, for past few years. Uh, no, no, before, earlier, earlier. 
just one one more one more go back yes this is uh last few years people of azad kashmir have and, and punch especially have been uh, subjected to uh, a great torture and terrorization uh ruthless and random firing by mortar guns took place now mortar is a heavy caliber gun and it was being used against civilians by pakistan army resulting in many deaths next one and the memorandum went on to describe in graphic detail how the women were raped not only being raped but in some cases their breasts and secret parts have been bitten by the police and its officers instances of teenage boys being subjected to unnatural vices by platoon so and so terrorized by the situation 3000 people have gone over to the indian side of the ceasefire line now these are all muslims kashmiri muslims who were crossing over to escape military operation by pakistan army to the indian side now if the situation was this bad obviously pakistan could not afford a plebiscite because it was not sure of the outcome of the vote even in the territory under its control now this document was circulate was presented to security council by krishnanand in 1957 pakistan's foreign minister sir zafullah khan a very valuable figure who was present did not demur so obviously this was correct this document was circulated thereafter as a un document incidentally sudan revolt finds extensive uh, extensive uh, reference in writings of mohammad yusuf sarraf also who was a muslim conference leader and later became the chief justice of pok supreme judicial council so this is a established fact now this memorandum was circulated as a un document which is a public document and thereafter somebody some power decided to classify it why because obviously the intent was to save pakistan's embarrassment and then it disappeared from public memory i got uh, on my request un has declassified this and it is again available on 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 the un website so this is the reason why pakistan rejected plebiscite under un auspices though it claims this to be its uh, official position rhetorically but then sir the natural follow up anybody would ask is i mean then what is the internal governance structure in pok i mean kuch hai bhi udhar matlab hum aaj ka ek wo har cheez mein azadi azadi aa jati hai inki to fir kae ki azadi you know this is a very important question the pakistani narrative on kashmir issue there are two central themes azadi and wishes of the people both are absent in governance of the territory and the pakistani control so while the indian state of jnk underwent repeated elections starting in 52 and then the constituent constitution was adopted was approved in 57 and so on uh, on the pakistani side pok was essentially run on the basis of executive fiats these are called you know the rules of business issued by ministry of kashmir affairs and essentially a joint secretary in ministry of kashmir affairs which was located in rawalpindi uh, uh, not karachi 
essentially the joint secretary ran uh, pok there's a, a famous episode which uh, yusuf sarraf and others have mentioned that one of the pok presidents went to meet this joint secretary and the joint secretary uh, interrupted the conversation he said there was a call from karachi the national capital and he told uh, the pok president to go and sit in his pa's room so this was the status of the pok president that he had to wait in the room of the private assistant of the joint secretary uh, so these were just statutory positions now chaudhry ghulam abbas who was a muslim conference chairman and a great supporter of pakistan he was disqualified from contesting in uh, 1964 elections which were based on limited franchise basic democracy which were essentially sham elections devised by uh, ayub khan both for pakistan as well as pok and khurshid uh, uh, who was a pok you know khurshid was pa to jinnah and jinnah is god in pakistan so his pa also has a very high, had a very high stature and he was appointed as pok president uh, he was arrested in 65 so this is uh, the governance essentially meant direct control by ministry of kashmir affairs and this uh, brings me there is a uh, very interesting uh, directive issued by ulam shahkhan if you can uh, go to the next slide now ulam shahkhan as cabinet he is a very famous figure in pakistan's history he was uh, cabinet secretary in 1971 later he became president of pakistan and one of the most powerful presidents who dismissed two elected prime ministers benazir and nawaz sharif in the 90s Now in seventy in seventy one, this is uh, May. He issued this directive, and I'll read out the last sentence. You know, he the directive was to Pakistan government departments to deal with Azad Kashmir in the field of its responsibility. Should look upon and deal with Azad Kashmir as if it were another administrative unit of the country. So while Pakistan's official position was and remains that this is azad here the internal directive said that this should be treated as a part of uh, part of pakistan so but the, they, they don't even have any consistency in their communication which is so weird and uh, well the only consistency is a pakistani control this directive was repeated again in 1988 by somebody else Yeah, but then uh, what about the thing that Bhutto said in the Pakistan National Assembly? Now we come to seventy-one war, which changed the political landscape. And uh, Bhutto, who had vowed to fight a thousand-year wars war against India in the UN debate, uh, seven you know uh, seven months later he he signed Shimla Agreement, and in the debate on Shimla Agreement on fourteen July nineteen seventy-two. and this is based on you know the proceedings of the pakistan it was then constituent assembly uh, later it became national assembly and i got these records from us library of congress for which i'm very grateful uh bhutto said that kash un resolutions did not support pakistan's position on kashmir uh now this was he was making the statement as president of pakistan he was a president who knew un very well 
and the statement was made in a very formal setting in the constituent assembly why did he say so he explained in his lengthy speech that the un security council resolution of april 1948 as well as unsep resolution he didn't mention unsep he mentioned security council resolution it asked pakistan to withdraw all its forces while it asked india to withdraw only bulk of its forces so this was a differentiation which i had explained earlier rested on the recognition that india had a de jure position pakistan had none and bhutto exclaimed it was then and then that you lost the right of self determination now uh, here again he was twisting the tail slightly because no un resolution on kashmir has mentioned right of self determination which did not exist or which existed very weakly as a legal concept when the kashmir issue was taken to the united nations in 1948 uh, you know 48 coincided with the adoption of universal declaration of human rights the most the foundational document of the modern literature of human rights and that does not mention right of self determination so he was essentially admitting that un resolutions did not support pakistan's case but giving it a twist now what is a significant and this was not one off statement he repeated it 15 days later in karachi what is the significance because soon thereafter pakistan buried shimla agreement and resurrected un resolutions and it says and its uh, reasoning is that the un charter and un resolutions uh, override bilateral agreements now even conceding pakistani argument in theory for a minute uh, as a hypothesis even then it was by given the account of pakistan's president itself un resolutions did not support pakistan's position on kashmir hmm to so, sir fir mere ko ek samajh mein nahi aa raha then then so so aapki ye slide explain kariye i am going to bring it up then what is this this pok interim constitution like nothing makes sense like if i i you know as i was reading your book i was trying to join the dots from a pakistani perspective and nothing makes sense to me from their side you know so shimla agreement was was followed by adoption of pok interim constitution in 1974 now this is uh, a paragraph which is quoted word verbatim definition of state subject now let me preface it by two things before pok interim constitution was adopted in 74 in 1972 pakistan citizenship act was extended to pok as well as northern area so people of pok were made pakistani citizens not by their will not through ex- exercise of right of self determination which pakistan upholds not through even mandated uh, plebiscite they became pakistani citizens as a result of pakistan citizenship act passed by pakistani parliament so if they have already become pakistani citizen then what is the point of uh, having a you know calling for plebiscite and claiming that uh, pok is azad or separate now the 
let's come to the definition given and this makes goes back to a notification by maharaja's government in 27 uh, defining who the subjects of the kashmir yasat state subject now this has been amended as you can see and i have highlighted in uh, certain parts state subject means a person for the time being residing in azad jammu and kashmir or pakistan so this has completely done away with the distinction between citizen of pakistan and a subject of pok because you know for the time being means there could be constant uh, influx in and out uh, you can be sitting in lahore and be a pakistani citizen and then you come to pok and become a, a state subject uh, now and then it goes on to say or pakistan who is a state subject as defined in late government of state of jammu and kashmir notification as amended from time to time now maharaja amended this only once or twice so who amended it thereafter and what does the amendment mean so essentially pakistan completely did away with any legal distinction between pakistani citizens and subjects of state subjects of pok and changed the demographic composition rule by proxy now let me go to the next can you go to the next slide yeah. you know this is some again something from pok constitution uh this says that no person or political party shall be permitted to propagate against or take part in activities prejudicial or detrimental to the ideology of the state's accession to pakistan so accession to pakistan is a predetermined conclusion neither accession to india nor independence are choices given to people of the state so again there is no self determination self determination is equated with predetermination in favor of accession to pakistan now if let's next slide next this i have already this is bhutto's comment no okay now let me explain can you just move the slide aside uh, for the time being let me just explain now pok constitutions all over the world define powers of elected assembly and elected government pok's constitution defines powers of pakistan within pok now this is very strange and this is done the article 31 of pok's interim constitution uh, which vests all powers both legislative and executive powers in a council headed by pakistani prime minister so what pakistan did after adoption of constituent elected assembly and government came into existence but pakistan created a parallel body a supra constitutional body outside the framework of pok which was headed by pakistani prime minister pakistani prime minister is not a citizen of or subject of pok and all the powers were vested in this council it was called kashmir council so this was described as ruled by proxy where pakistan was essentially running both both legislative and executive functions of the pok government now this was much criticized 30 years later under 13th amendment of pok constitution in 2018 kashmir council was relegated to advisory role 
But, and mark my words, its powers were not transferred to elected assembly. Its powers have now been directly assumed by Pakistan. So Pakistan exercises direct legislative and executive powers over 32 subjects within POK. This is hollowing out POK's autonomy from within. And even on the remaining 22 subjects, Pakistan's consent is needed. Now, the interesting part is that uh, this change took place a year before deletion of Article 370, which was criticized by Pakistan as having you know, destroyed uh, Kash uh, Kashmir's autonomy. And a year before, Pakistan had legally assumed control over all the critical powers within POK. And this includes powers of taxation, powers over strategic highways and water, the two of the critical sources. Now, let me touch on Northern area, which is, uh, as I explained at the beginning of our discussion, is the 85% of the territory. And let me go back a little to the closing years of the first Kashmir war, uh, which started in 47 with tribal invasion. By May 48, Pakistan had committed regular troops. January 49, uh, the two countries agreed on a ceasefire and a formal truce agreement was signed in June 49. Now, the UN report said, you know, after the UNCIP resolution was adopted in August 48, which we have discussed earlier, Pandit Nehru wrote to UN that India wants to station its military garrison in northern area because there was a complete void. Pakistani presence was just limited to Gilgit town. UN did not dispute Indian position, but it said that we'll come to it when the ceasefire goes into effect. Ceasefire went into effect, as I said, six, four months later in, in January 49. Now, the UN report says that in the autumn of 1948, Pakistan did not have effective control over northern areas. Pakistan government, in a written statement to the United Nations, which is quoted in the UN report, said that it had only one officer in this entire area, northern area, which is 85% of POK. Now, this is a situation till December 48, according to UN records, when Pakistan didn't have an effective control because it had only one officer and that too only based in Gilgit town. The same report, 20 paras down the line, goes on to say, but by January 49, Pakistan was in effective control. Now, how could it be? that a day earlier, that is 31st December 48, Pakistan did not have effective control. And a day later, on 1st January 49, it came into effective control over such a large territory. Now, I have shown in my book that this is simply whitewashing. And mind you, UNCEP did not have presence on the ground. So UNCEP was only going by whatever information was being fed to it by by Pakistan because UNMOGIP, which is the military observer group for India-Pakistan, it came into existence much later. So till it came into existence, UN did not have any independent source of verification of Pakistani claim. Now, UN records show that as late as 40, uh, May 49, Pakistan did not have control because Pakistan, uh, in response to India's repeated request for stationing its military garrison, 
asked about the locations where India wants to station its garrison in northern area. So obviously Pakistan didn't have its any forces. And then certainly in Maine, and that is a turning point. It's you know uh, it went back. So the UN report itself is a kind of you know it, it, it raises many questions that you know till forty eight and you had no Pakistan had no control and certainly. Uh, it comes into effective control. So essentially, Pakistan expanded into northern area after ceasefire went into effect. Now, given the strategic importance of northern area, because it borders borders Afghanistan, it borders uh, Central Asia, and it gives gave Pakistan contiguity to China. This area has been more tightly controlled than the rest of uh, POK. So while POK or Azad Kashmir got a nominal constitution in, in 1974. Uh, Gilgit Baltistan, uh, Northern area remained under direct control of uh, Ministry of Kashmir Affairs. As late as 93, and I, you know, that slide here, I, I mentioned that, you know, POK High Court's judgment where it said that in 93 that uh, uh, that detachment of northern areas from the rest of Azad Jammu and Kashmir tantamounts to violation of the resolutions of Security Council of March so and so. Now, this was uh, now this was a huge slap on Pakistan's face because POK High Court itself said that Pakistan had violated Security Council resolution. So Pakistan created a council in May to govern this territory, which was still then directly controlled by Ministry of Kashmir Affairs. This council had only limited municipal powers. So in 1999, people of northern areas went into appeal to Pakistan Supreme Court. Supreme Court in its judgment, which came in May 99, said that it asked Pakistan two things. It asked Pakistan to give uh, people of the territory. Can you go ahead? I think I have this slide. Go ahead. Okay, okay. No, no, okay. Let it be. Let it let it be. So in 19 no, just keep this aside for a minute. So in 1999, uh, Pakistan Supreme Court in a historic judgment asked Pakistan to give people of northern areas judicially enforceable fundamental rights. Second, it said that Pakistan should provide representative institutions within a period of six months. Now, what is the implication? The implication is that neither there were fundamental rights till 99, nor any representative government. And the Supreme Court in its judgment said, you know, described powers of the council as akin to functions of municipality. Now, interestingly, this famous judgment came in May 99. What is the significance? May 99, Pakistan had moved its troops into Kargil, ostensibly to liberate uh, Kashmir from what Pakistan describes as Indian occupation. And here, you know, the Pakistan Supreme Court was describing that people on the Pakistani side had no uh, rights. And very interestingly, again, uh, a, a, a telling point, Pakistan government in its submission to the Securities to the Supreme Court. Pakistan government was opposed to Supreme Court, you know, prying into this area which was closely uh, held as military's preserve. So Pakistan said that, you know, this is not part of uh, 
uh, you have no ju jurisdiction. And uh, the wording said, Pakistan has been in effective occupation of this territory since 1947. It has used the term occupation in a submission to Pakistan Supreme Court. Now, the last point about this, there is a very interesting judgment. The, there is also the issue, neither POK nor Northern Area are defined as part of Pakistan under Pakistani constitution. Article 1 of Pakistan's constitution, which defines Pakistan's territory, omits both of these. So how come Pakistan's Supreme Court exercises judgment jurisdiction over this territory. Pakistan's Supreme Court solved this legal conundrum in a very innovative manner. The Supreme Court said human rights are universal. So using universality of the human rights, it exercised established its jurisdiction over a territory which is not part of Pakistan under Pakistani constitution itself. Now, the judgment itself was a pro was still a progressive was a step forward because it asked for a representative government. It took Pakistan 10 years before it established uh, an elected assembly, which came about in 2009. And this was Kurtzi Zardari, who was then president of Pakistan. Zardari was a Shia. Northern area, which by now had been renamed as Gilgit Baltistan, is the only territory under Pakistan's control or any of the Pakistani province where Shias are in the majority. So Zardari had sympathies to this region. So he gave them limited powers under Gilgit-Baltistan order of 2009. They were given powers, elected assembly was created, it was given powers over 61 subjects. Now, 2018, fast forward, Gilgit, a fresh order was issued, Gilgit-Baltistan order of 2018. And under this order, the entire list of 61 subjects on which the elected assembly had been earlier given uh, limited pass was abolished. Now, this led to huge protests in Gilgit-Baltistan and orders of Gil this order were torn in the presence of Pakistan's acting Prime Minister Shah Haksan Abbasi. This is, he was the acting Prime Minister in between Nawaz Sharif and Imran Khan. Uh, in the Gilgit-Baltistan Assembly, the, the people went to Gilgit-Baltistan Supreme Judicial Court and the Supreme Judicial Court of the Territory in a historic judgment set aside the Pakistan government's order of 2018. In, uh, now, this was a replay of what happened in 93, where the POK High Court had uh, taken a similarly courageous step. Now, this again was a huge slap on Pakistan's face. Pakistan went and appealed to Pakistan Supreme Court. In 99, it was challenging Supreme Court's jurisdiction over Northern Area. Now, it itself moved to Supreme Court. And Supreme Court sided, Islam, side, sided with Islamabad against the people of Northern uh, area or Gilgit-Baltistan and restored the order of 2018 against which they were, people were agitating. Now, both these are, you know, major changes, that is change in the POK constitution where Pakistan assumed direct powers within POK and Gilgit-Baltistan order of the same year, 2018. 
which has vested all the powers in the person of the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Both these steps took place a year before deletion of Article 370. Now, what is the position of Gilgit Baltistan? You know, if you go back in history around the time of First World War, Congo was not simply a Belgian colony. It was a personal state of King Leopold of Belgium. There was frank, no question of any fundamental rights. Now, this is exactly the situation of Gilgit Baltistan today because under Gilgit Baltistan order of 2018, all the legislative as well as executive powers are vested in the person of the Prime Minister of Pakistan. So, this tells you where is Azadi and where are the wishes of the people in, pa in the governance system which Pakistan has devised for this territory. Sir, agar, if this is the scenario then, then what about all the claims about elections, uh, you know, hum to, hum to logon ke liye kar rahe, kaum ke liye kar rahe, kaum ke liye kar rahe, unke liye kar rahe, then, then where, how does one, I mean, what the hell is, the, like my brain just gets short-circuited short -circuited when I listen to these things and then the reality is something else. You know, as I explained, that for first 26 years of its existence, POK was run on the basis of executive fiats issued by Ministry of Kashmir Affairs Rules of Business. First election under Universal Franchise took place in POK as well as rest of Pakistan only in 1970. And uh, that brought into existence a certain assembly, uh, sorry, uh, a POK president. Now, after Zia's coup of 77, he, the POK assembly was invited to dissolve itself. This is, you know, a collective suicide done voluntarily, quote unquote. So the assembly dissolved itself and the POK president thereafter was dismissed by Zia. Now, after that, and Zia had promised that elections both in Pakistan and POK within 10 days or something like that. It took eight years. So for eight years till, you know, till 74, there was no constitution. Then the constitution came into being, assembly was formed and then dissolved in 77. Between 77 and 85, no elections, eight years. And when the elections took place in 85, these were partyless elections. Now, JKLF, Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, uh, you know, Yasin Malik is a prominent member. Uh, JKLF, there was used as a front to start the campaign of terror, terrorist violence in, uh, in, on the Indian side of, uh, of line of control in, the, in 89. But JKLF has never been allowed to take part in elections on the POK side because I had shown you that slide which, you know, from the POK constitution which bars any party or individual to challenge the ideology of accession uh, uh, to Pakistan and JKLF stands for independent Pakistan. So it has never been allowed to take part in any election in in. Uh, in POK. Now, thereafter, elections have been held. 
JKLF has not been allowed. Other parties have taken part. The last elections were in 2021. Now, there are, again, a few very interesting parts. Elections are meaningless because the elected assemblies have no powers. As I have explained earlier, that the powers over taxation, over road, over water, all the, the entire set of powers are vested, were first vested in Kashmir Council and now have been taken over by Pakistan government directly. So elections produce an assembly and a government which have no powers. Second is that elections have always resulted in bringing to power the government which is there in Islamabad. Now this happy coincidence is a result of uh, very, you know, an artificial uh, structuring that is of the 53 seats in POK assembly, uh, 20, 12 are, uh, these are called, you know, these are seats distributed all over Pakistan. So this is more than, you know, 12 out of 53 means uh, more than 20%. Now these seats are essentially decided they are in the gift of Pakistan's Prime Minister or Chief Minister of that state. Because there are very few people, Kashmiris, are in, in, in these in, in areas outside uh, POK. So this system has been used to create a permanent leverage in favor of Islamabad to bring to power the party it wants. And it has created such anomalies that in the in one of the elections, MQM, which is party of the Mohajis based in Karachi, won two seats in POK assembly. Now the, you know, the very recently, this is sometime uh, after Imran Khan's government fell, this is in, uh, um, this is last year, summer last year, there was a change in POK. Now this time, it was done with a lot of finesse, the party remained the same. The party, you know, which had won the last election when Imran Khan was in power, that was PTI. PTI has 33 out of 53 seats. Now, if party has such a comfortable position, why have the change in leadership? Even more interesting part. The change was brought about as a result of vote of no confidence. Now, vote, vote of no confidence is a perfectly legitimate device in any democracy to change government. But here the party was not being changed. The vote of no confidence was moved, not by opposition, but by the ruling party. And the opposition, the entire opposition, that is both PML and as well as PPP, boycotted. So this was a, a device, a legal device used to engineer an in-party change at the behest of powers that be. Now. This is a, uh, there's again something very interesting. You know, the, uh, according to the last census, the, there are 30,000 Kashmiris in POK. These are people who have come from the Kashmir Valley. The number of refugees, that is both Kashmiris and people from Jammu is something like 3,64,000. The population of POK is about 3 million. 
so what does it tell you and people from the baki ke log kon hai fir wo to aap samajh lijiye wo kahan se aaye hain wo to punjabi hai sare you can look at the some of the youtube recordings you know people in the pok assembly in gilgit baltistan they are dark complexion complexion people now who has heard of uh, or seen a dark complexion kashmiri but let me complete so according to official census there are only 30000 kashmiris which is less than 1% of the population of pok so though pakistan has appropriated kashmir cause there are hardly any kashmiris and 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 pok most of the these people were from jammu region or rather punch region and most of them were displaced by 67 with the construction of uh, mangla dam so there has been complete change of demographic composition of that territory so one last point because i know you also have a slide on it but uh, i actually wanted to, uh, to talk about this uh, Uh, okay this is the uh, united uh, uk statement uh, so so what has been the role of the west or uh, in general when it comes to quote unquote wishes of the people you know let me make a distinction in the early phase of debate in the security council us supported indian position and the american representative said in debate in the security council that the legality of jnk's accession to india is beyond doubt it was the british who cleared the pitch against india because pakistan was essentially a british creation and it was demand for plebiscite was inserted in uh, was not part of the instrument of accession signed by maharaja it was a letter written by by mountbatten and this there was a consistency in the stand this was not limited to only mountbatten's action and mountbatten could not have acted on his own this was also reflected in uk's position in the security council <coughs> so uk has strenuously supported plebiscite and jnk when it came to uk's territorial interests in cyprus which was a british colony about say 800 or 1000 kilometers away from from british mainland uk took the reverse position it said that you know right of self determination cannot be applied to any territory of a member state because this was clearly an internal matter for that state itself <coughs> any infringement by the united nations of that fundamental principle that is interference by un in the internal matter would be regarded by the united kingdom government as ultra vires and completely unacceptable so when it came to its own territorial interests its position changed completely so i mean uh, the hypocrisy of the british side is uh, is mind blowing now before we wrap things up uh, ambassador dinkar i do wanted to talk about this whole uh indus water treaty you, you have uh, touched upon the natural resources and uh, the overall development of that area in some detail in the book in 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 parts uh, uh in the book uh, so ca- can you also talk about this uh indus water treaty has no parallel in world history 
it gave Pakistan 80% of the waters. There is no precedent where the upper riparian has conceded 80% of the waters to the lower riparian and that too where India has seven times had seven times the population of Pakistan. Now, Pakistan used this and built a dam, Mangla Dam on Jhelum River, which was completed in 67, for 36 years and started using both the water as well as the hydro power. For 36 years, people of POK were given no compensation for their water or electricity from a dam which had caused massive displacement. It had, in fact, changed the demographic composition. The so-called Meerpuris are essentially people who were displaced from this area and now are safely ensconced in UK and they, they raise Kashmir cause and Kashmir slogan there. The population here has changed. But the POK was not given any compensation. When the compensation was started sometime in 2003, POK was given 15 pesa per unit, while Pakistan's provinces are given 1 rupee 10 pesa, that is seven times more. What is the reason how for this discrimination? Pakistan's claim is that 1 rupee 7, 10 pesa is the hydropower royalty, and that can only be given under Article 161 of Pakistani Constitution to Pakistan's provinces. And Pakistan, being a good citizen of the world, has not made POK a, a constitution of Pakistan. It is an Azad territory. So how can it give POK hydropower royalty? Now, the catch here is that Pakistan's constitution was adopted in 1973, six years after Mangla Dam was constructed in 67. So there was enough time for Pakistan to reflect it in the constitution when it was being debated. Assuming that this was a omission, since then there have been 26 amendments of Pakistani constitution. Everything else has been changed except this part. So obviously this is not an omission. Now the third part is that in international law, suppose we buy French cheese or buy machinery from US, or buy something from China. France, China, or US are not part of Indian territorial jurisdiction, but we make payment for it, for goods and services which you buy from outside the, your legal jurisdiction. So even if POK is not part of Pakistan, Pakistan should give it a fair uh, remuneration. And the last thing is that POK's distinct status did not come in the way of exploiting its resources. It was the issue was raised only when it came to paying for it. All right. Uh, so I Let's I had see. a couple of... Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to touch on CPEC. You know, why this is a very important part. I, yeah, I please, think that please go ahead. You know, the Pakistan was conceived as a unitary state in 2010 under Zadari. It underwent a major change with the 18th Amendment of Pakistani Constitution, which devolved more powers on Pakistan's provinces. And the reason was, again, Zadari, because he was a Sindhi and he wanted a little more political space for his state, so his province, so he gave them more provincial autonomy and transferred more resources. In case of POK and Northern Area, the control has been tightened. 
I have explained, you know, the 13th Amendment of POK Constitution and the Gilgit Baltistan Order of 2018. Why this com complete change, you know, movement in reverse direction? Because sometime between 2010 and 2018, CPEC was declared China Pakistan Economic Corridor. Now, CPEC has brought Pakistan both financial bounty as well as military support in terms of Chinese presence in Gwadar. So, the importance of this region and CPEC enters Pakistan through northern area, which is called Gilgit Baltistan. So, this is the reason why Pakistan military tightened its control over this territory while Islamabad centralized control was relaxed in the rest of Pakistan. Now, this uh, under CPEC, they have uh, Pakistan has received, you know, the the big figures touted, you know, 46 billion and so on. Actually, according to World Bank figures, only 23 billion have been received. Of the 23 billion, the bulk has gone into POK and Gilgit Baltistan. And this is something which India has to take cognizance of. Gwadar, which has been in, in media gaze, has received a small part, $900 million. POK has got $5 billion. Northern area will get about $12 billion. Bhasa Dam, which is going to be a massive 4,000 megawatt hydroelectric power project for which MOU has been signed with Chinese government, will get $12 billion of Chinese credit. And this MOU has been signed. And despite the catastrophe, the climate uh, challenge last year where Pakistan underwent floods, this project has been retained and during Shahbaz Sharif's visit to Beijing after he became Prime Minister in October 2022, the joint statement reiterated that, that Bhasa Dam will go ahead. So about two-thirds, that is roughly 16 to 17 billion dollar of 23 billion committed under CPEC is going into northern area and, and POK. So obviously, China is trying to tighten its grip on India's East Ladakh. It has already established presence and we know the rest of it. Also tightening its presence in the on the western side. So actually, my question was about China and uh, how much should uh, our nation be worried about this whole Chinese interference? The Chinese are unlike the Americans. You know, the Americans were generous. And you have seen the result that despite uh, $20 billion or more of American assistance, the, what Pakistan did to U.S., uh, when Kabul fell. But the Chinese are a different kettle of fish. So if they have put their money down, they want returns. And they have built this into a very curious structure. That is, money does not flow. Most of the money, 23 billion, you know, there's a very small tranche, about a couple of billion dollars, which have been given to Pakistan government on concessional terms for infrastructure development. And so-called infrastructure development is again taking place in northern area, highways, optical fiber line, which again will you know serve Pakistan, China's strategic interests. China is worried about the Malacca 
dilemma. And apart from disruption in shipping, it's very disruption of the internet traffic. So internet cable lands in, in Pakistan and the, the transition will be through Pakistan, Northern India into, into China. So this is this infrastructure part for which two or three billion have been given by China. Most of the Chinese money is being given to Chinese companies, not even to Pakistani companies. These are, you know, the uh, credit given to Chinese companies executing projects in, in, in Pakistan. And China has also got guarantee, sovereign guarantee from Pakistan that 17% return in dollar terms for Chinese investment under CPEC. Now, this is very funny. Money is being given to private sector and that too, not to the country's private sector, but to Chinese companies. But the borrower's obligation has been assumed by Pakistan government. Normally, sovereign guarantee anywhere, for instance, India has taken money from World Bank and so on in the past. So sovereign guarantee was given by Indian government for projects where money came to government projects. Yes. China has extracted Pakistan's sovereign guarantee for money being given to Chinese companies. So there's a double jeopardy for Pakistan. They have guaranteed 17% return on, on investment in dollar terms and Pakistani currency is sinking. So that means the debt obligation goes up. And regardless of the outcome of the project, money will have to be shelled out by Pakistan government. So this has very major implications. And of course, now China has started uh, demanding uh, posting of its own uh, guards. So in places like Gwadar, the inner, uh, the first ring of security to Chinese are provided by Chinese guards. And there are reports that similar thing has been done in, in Northern India. So they are going putting boots on the ground also. So one last question before I wrap it up. Now, considering that you shared that there are barely any actual POK residents over there and it has been completely taken over by people who are, you know, where we, are, we all know where they are from and the resources are taken over. Everything is pretty much taken over in that sense. Then what about the general interest of the people and how? So, like, so I guess that this whole idea of plebiscites and taking care of things but beyond that, uh, how does India, because obviously India uh, says that is their property, their land, their region, whatever word we want to use in in uh, in uh, in the eyes of the law. But uh, how does how would India reach out to those people who are the minuscule minority who are the actual people of that area? That you know, it is something which the people of that region have to raise this issue and they have raised it, but they have been suppressed. Amanullah Khan, the founder of JKLF, we discussed that earlier, has given, he is dead now, but he had given a series of interviews to Human Rights Watch, a human rights NGO based in New York, and in which he had graphically dis, uh, you know, described how the people are suppressed. And he said, please don't leave us. So this is not simply India's responsibility, it's for the ent entire international community to see that the people of this region get a fair deal. And of course, the people of the region also have to understand 
what pakistan is uh, there are problems of nationalities in in khyber pakhtunkhwa in sindh muhajirs and baloch and baloch are the smallest nationality they are about 5% but they have undergone about 6 5 or 6 military operations the population of pok and uh, is even smaller than the baloch population so you know the pakistani control is even tighter so it's a very dire situation for them but it's for the entire international community to to uh take note of the situation fair enough sir sir before we wrap it up uh, abhi uh, if if you don't mind me asking next project kya hai kaun si kitab aane wali hai aapki i'm writing a book uh i'm not chosen the title pakistan but it's essentially on ideologies of pakistan it covers the entire you know period from jinnah to imran khan and it brings out you know touches on some of the important milestones like jinnah's speech of 11th august 48 which is held by liberals in pakistan as uh, as the golden standard from which uh, pakistan has deviated and i have analyzed that speech in terms of a dissenter in terms of his wali khan in terms of uh, establishment figure justice munir and in terms of what a religious leader like modudi says it also touches on some other milestones like objectives resolution which essentially circumscribed the powers of the elected legislature and established the supremacy of the divine this was the biggest step towards making pakistan a, an islamic state and this objectives resolution was brought into pakistan's constitution by bhutto and given overriding authority over fundamental rights by zia and though the civilian parties after zia's demise have have repealed many of his other uh, you know uh, other uh, legislation which have a bearing on the uh, on, on democratic functioning of government they have not touched this part they have not touched on the what zia did in terms of islamization of pakistan so there is a political consensus so my next book will be touching on some of these aspects which are normally lost in description of uh, you know the usual trajectory from ayub to bhutto to zia and so on which is the history of the rulers but what are the underlying motives and ideologies which have a consistency and that consistency is remarkable that even when there was no constitution the ideology has guided and pakistan and that ideology has remained a consistent factor whether it was a military rule or civilian fair enough so uh... uh ambassador shivasa thank you very much uh, for coming on the podcast uh, i i thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading your book in fact i loved the ending jahan pe aapne faiz ahmed faiz ki poetry se end kiya kitab ko i thoroughly enjoyed this uh, so once again thank you very much uh, for coming and uh, i look forward to reading your next book too thank you thanks for having me thank you
All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. Once again, before we wrap it up, uh, in the description of the podcast, there'll be a link to buy the book. So go to the link, click it and buy the book. This is a very important book. Every Indian should read. You will get a lot of arguments, especially if you're outside India. Outside India, we always say, tell us about books. We can sit with our friends in the dining room. And as far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. Please like this video. Leave your comments in the comment section. Subscribe to the Charvak podcast. If you're an audio-only listener, please leave your review on iTunes or rating on Spotify. And buy the podcast merchandise. And if possible become a member on youtube patreon fanmo wherever you are i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye